Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello there. Thanks for joining us for today's podcast. This is Peng Fei Zhao, one of your hosts for the New Books in Education. Today, I will be talking with Jessica Lester, Chad Lodge-Miller, and Rachel Gabriel on their edited volume, Discursive Perspectives on Education Policy and Implementation. The book was published by Pelgrave Macmillan in 2017. It won this year's AERA Qualitative Research SIG Outstanding Book Award. Among the many things that you will hear about this award-winning book, I will just highlight a few here. What are discursive perspectives? How will these perspectives help us think of education policies differently? And how did the editors organize a seamless collaboration to produce an award-winning book? One of the exciting things about the book, and I will put it right here, is it delineates a new orientation for the study of education policies. With that, I will leave you to the interview. And again, thanks for being with us. I hope you enjoy. I'm here to talk with uh, Jessica Lester, Chad Lodge-Miller, and Rachel Gabriel about their new book, Discursive Perspectives on Educational Policy and I- Implementation. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank nice you. to be here. So let's start with a brief self-introduction. Maybe you can uh, take turns to introduce yourself to our audience. So um, I wonder uh, we should, uh, which order we should take. Maybe, uh, Jessica, you should go first. Sure. Thanks, Pengfei. So I'm Jessica Lester. I'm an associate professor at Indiana University in the Inquiry Methodology Program. Um, and my areas of focus uh, have centered around discourse studies, um, and quite often a lot of my substantive work is also in the area of critical disability studies um, in educational contexts as well as mental health contexts. And I'm Chad Lockmiller. I'm an assistant professor in educational leadership and policy studies at Indiana University, and my research interests include uh, issues both related to education policy and educational leadership, specifically those involving resource allocation and human resource development. And Rachel? I'm Rachel Gabriel. I'm an associate professor of literacy education at the University of Connecticut. Um, I teach in a program that prepares reading specialists to work in K-12 schools, and my research focuses on um, teacher development and evaluation and the policies that um, interact with literacy learning opportunities. Well, thank you, Al. And it sounds like you have very different expertise. And this is this is a book of uh, collaboration. So how did you come up with this collaborative idea? And even how, how did you get to know each other? Yeah, I, this is Jessica. I'm happy to uh-huh. frame a little bit first about how we came to this, this book project. 
Um, so initially, um, it was in May of 2014, we were all attending the International Congress of Qualitative Inquiry, which is a, um, an annual international gathering um, at University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, Illinois. Um, and we were um, literally just having a conversation um, in between sessions uh, about the ways in which discourse, discursive perspectives uh, may inform policy research and recognizing that we all come from slightly different backgrounds. Um, it was a conversation wherein we shared our different perspectives. Um, so we were really interested in the ways that language-based methods for, might be used to study education policy. So I came at, came at it from a methodological perspective, of course, and Rachel and Chad both offered really different and unique policy perspectives as well. Um, and so initially we started this project um, by um, pursuing special issue uh, with um, Educational Policy Analysis Archives Journal. Um, and specifically this, this was an open call where we um, invited people to propose both methodological and empirical pieces that um, discussed and or empirically illustrated the ways in which discursive perspectives might be leveraged to make sense of education policy issues. So the open call, um, perhaps I think for most, for all of us, we were really surprised. Um, I know the, the editors of the journal were surprised as well. We had a, a really tremendous response, um, far more um, submissions of interest than we could ever even imagine including in a special issue. So there was great interest in this topic. Um, and it led to a two-part special issue um, that were published in 2016 and 2017 in the Education Policy Analysis Archives. And one of the special issues focused on critical discourse analysis and education policy, something that has had a long-standing position in ed policy. And the other issue in 2017 focused on really diverse perspectives of language-based methodologies um, for making sense of um, education policy issues writ large. So that was really how we came to this project. Um, and then after that, we realized there was more to say. Um, and we tapped um, our special issue authors and invited them to consider continuing the conversation in the form of an edited volume. And it's important to understand that the case study perspective has really been the dominant methodological approach in terms of uh, studying policy implementation and conducting most policy analyses. And so when we looked at the literature and we looked at uh, various published studies, particularly those from the UK by Stephen Ball, we saw that uh, discourse perspectives were increasingly um, valued, but they hadn't necessarily permeated the United States policy context. And so uh, we chose to create this volume really in response to that gap uh, and recognize that the opportunities to uh, contribute to that discussion were something that we felt could push the field to understand policy implementation at a much more micro level, uh, as opposed to some of the big macro understandings that we currently had. Well, thank you. So do you have anything to add, Rachel? Um, <laughs> no, I think it's, I'm, I'm uh, struck by kind of how um, coherent the whole uh, stream comes together because I think when uh, all of these things were surprises to us as Jessica sort of mentioned so what started as a small conversation just between three um, researchers who knew each other um, and who knew each other's work um, really blossomed into a whole coherent uh, train that um, other scholars were able to jump on and as we learned from them we were able to create um, not one but two issues of, uh, of the journal that Jessica mentioned, and then also uh, move the conversation forward towards a conversation that engaged the whole the field as a whole, instead of um, only kind of collecting examples of what could be possible. And so I think that's what's been exciting about this collaboration is that we've been able to um, talk with each other and talk with colleagues about what um, has been happening in the field of policy studies, what could be happening, um, and to really main, sustain that level of conversation, um, which, as Chad said, kind of reaches beyond this individual policy, individual case mentality that I think a lot of us were trained and um, uh, submerged in for a long time. So um, I paused because as I was listening, I thought, wow, that all fits together. <laughs> but if you uh, live through it, it doesn't always um, feel as a uh, coherent. Yeah, it's exciting. And now I can't wait to um, 
move us to a conversation about the book itself. And I wonder um, if、uh, any one of you could. I have like several points I really would like to talk with you. But first of all, I wonder if any one of you could give us an just an overview of the book itself. And then I feel like、um, there are just several points emerging from the conversation we can dive deeper into, like、um, like the distinction between the macro level and the micro level、uh, studies、um, of、uh, education policies, and also how this perspective may. Move, um,、uh, like, may direct the studies of education policy to a different direction. So, yeah, let's start with an overview first. And any one of you would like to talk more about that? I'm happy to offer a, an overview, and then we'll invite my colleagues to jump in and, and fill in the blanks as well. So sure, the、yeah. the edited volume is a 12 chapter text, and four of the chapters, um. Uh, provide、um, in various ways、uh, an offering of the landscape,、um, either of educational policy or a methodological landscape,、um, and then the eight remaining chapters, which are contributed from、um, colleagues with varying levels of expertise and connection to educational policy and or language-based methodologies. The remaining eight chapters are empirical examples. Of a variety of ways that you can make sense of language-based perspectives, such as membership categorization or particular approaches to critical discourse analysis. We also have a post-qualitative orientation to discourse analysis specific to policy,、um, et cetera, et cetera. So those eight chapters are offerings that illustrate how particular language-based methodologies can really push the bounds of how we make sense of policy in varying ways. Um, and then the other chapters, as I mentioned, provide some methodological and/or substantive understandings. So our second chapter is one that attends to the literature connected to policy implementation and offers an understanding of the various methodological approaches that have been taken up to understand policy implementation as a way to really call for more language-based perspectives.、Um, our third chapter is one that offers a landscape of. Language-based methodologies and is really pedagogical in scope as well, so that those that are perhaps new to language-based methodologies but not new to education policy could use that chapter to make sense of how they might、um, further study a particular perspective and/or take it up in the future.、Um, and then our final chapter is one that、um, sets the stage for、um, future understandings and future potential directions for how.、Um, Education policy might bump up against and engage with language-based perspectives. And I think one of the other important things that this book does is it actually critiques many of the existing approaches that have been used in education policy research, and it does so in a way that that really invites the reader to pause and think critically about how the how the field has has attended to issues of policy implementation, and more importantly, how the field has actually. Been bound by some of those approaches, and thus miss some of the opportunities to understand、um, how individual policy actors make sense of and respond to、uh, policy mandates, policy directives.、Uh, and the most important thing that it does, as well, is it invites、uh, more deeper and more thoughtful consideration of some of the implicit issues in policy discourses. So the book really takes on some of the staid notions of what policy research should be. Uh, and it tries to advance those notions using a, a language-based approaches. And Rachel, do you have anything to add? No, I think that's a super clear summary. Thanks, guys. So, so Chad, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about these critiques. You know,、um, I. I have to keep in mind that our podcast is for a more general audience, so they may they may not have the、uh, knowledge about the current state of the field of、uh, education policy studies. So, first of all, would you like to say a little bit more about those、um, previous、uh, educational policy studies?、Uh, I mean, the approaches and basically like. What this book has been criticizing for about? Well, I mean, many、yeah. of the original policy、uh, research approaches were based on the rational actor model, which was essentially that 
uh, legislators or policymakers devised a policy and then communicated the intent of that policy uh, to localized policy actors who carried it out uh, in somewhat of a, of, a, of a hierarchical or a, a supervisor-subordinate relationship. What we've seen, though, through particularly uh, more recent policy research is, is that it's become increasingly clear that local policy actors uh, actually engage in what um, has been referred to as street-level bureaucracy. So Weatherly and Lipsky's notion of street-level bureaucracy suggests that individual policy actors actually make sense of the policy mandates that are communicated to them within localized and specific policy contexts. And one of the things that most of the um, policy literature has done since the 1970s when that perspective came out is really try to uh, put its hands around what that process looked like or how it unfolded. And so some of Jim Spallon's uh, more recent work, for example, has really sought to introduce this notion of cognitive perspectives being tied to the policy implementation process. So how do individuals think about uh, and make sense of policy before they actually proceed to the process of implementing it. And one of the things that this book really tries to do is to say that if we're thinking about policy implementation as a cognitive activity, then we also need to be thinking about policy implementation as a language-based activity. So how does the discourse serve as the best and most logical reflection of an individual's cognitive understanding of the policy? That's something that has not really been studied widely or deeply in the policy literature. And so that's one of the things that we really wanted to attend to. The other thing is, is that policy scholars have become increasingly focused on issues of power and inequity uh, within policy research. And one of the most uh, common ways or the most practical ways that policy scholars can uh, actually carry out or um, make sense of those issues is, is that they look at the discourse of how policy issues are being framed within the public space or within meeting spaces or within individual exchanges between legislators on the state house floor. And so all of those create uh, new opportunities, particularly when language-based methods are brought to bear, to begin unpacking how those understandings and substantive, uh, substantive perspectives can be applied, and most importantly, um, how those issues can be unpacked in a way that help us understand why policies work and don't work in ways that we previously haven't uh, considered. So it's really, it's, it's really a critique on many levels, and then it's also uh, to a certain extent, extensions or kind of a synthesis of the research that has already been published. Uh, and it's important to really connect all of those bodies of literature because one of the things that's happened, I think, in a lot of the, the more contemporary policy uh, literature is that scholars are applying new and varied perspective to understanding um, policy issues, but they may not necessarily be uh, embedding those understandings within some of the existing uh, existing perspectives or norms of the field. And that's something that we were very careful uh, to avoid doing in this book. We really tried to situate this book within some of those existing norms and use language-based methods uh, as an exemplar or an example uh, for bringing them together and making sense of them in some new and enlightened ways. Well, that really explains very well how this new approach, our new perspective uh, differs from some of the previous studies. So can you give us some examples? I feel like an example probably will really help understanding uh, all of the points you brought out just now. Uh, Rachel, can you speak to the study that you included in the volume? The study that I did with uh, Sarah Wolfen, who's an associate professor in ed leadership, educational leadership at the University of Connecticut, was um, a study of the testimony that people submitted in support or in argument against against a bill that was before the Connecticut State Legislature. And this was of particular interest to me because the bill was related to reading um, remediation and instruction in public schools. Um, but I'm also interested in it just uh, from a methodological standpoint uh, because there is an increasing sort of um, body of work focused on the policy making process instead of only um, what happens once a policy is made um, and the uh, um, and studying kind of the implementation afterwards, which is um, a focus for a lot of the authors in our book and something that I think Chad uh, really described beautifully a moment ago. Um, but we are interested in sort of how policy comes to be in the first place and how um, a microanalysis of the texts that are used uh, or considered during policy construction and the conversations and the debates that ensue related to those texts um, 
inform what kinds of policies are made and also the the context in which those policies are understood. So we draw on framing theory and ideas about how um, language is used to uh, kind of create the context and um, uh, repertoires of understanding that people bring to different issues. And the study that we looked at um, focuses on a bill that relates to dyslexia in particular, but we contrasted it with um, bills that exist in Connecticut already, and there are similar um, laws in lots of other states that um, had really similar um, foci in terms of what the law mandates that schools do, um, but the framing was different. So instead of um, framing these laws that control reading assessment and instruction as um, laws that were meant to support greater social equity or meant to support uh, literacy for secondary um, educational outcomes um, or literacy for college and career readiness. This uh, bill had a lot of the same um, uh, legal mechanisms in it of existing legislation. And really the only difference was that the frame was that these things are now being done not just to... um, uh, promote educational equity or educational outcomes in general, but specifically equity and outcomes for children with dyslexia labels. So we were interested in um, thinking through what that distinction meant um, and also in trying to understand how um, input from parents or input from the public in a broader sense uh, influences the ways that policies are considered and the ways that policies are uh, eventually written. Um, so it probably would also be good to hear an example from uh, from the other side of the policymaking process, that implementation piece. Uh, but the uh, article that Chad referred to is really focused on how policies are made in the first place. And there are examples in the book of the implementation of discipline policy, uh, the implementation of social welfare policy, and other policies that are are. Uh, that the that the analyst or that the researcher is actually focused on at the implementation level, um, but since Rachel was was able to speak more knowledgeably to the to the study that she uh, contributed, it makes sense to really highlight that as a as an exemplar. The other thing that I would say is is that Rachel's approach uh, is an approach that really mirrors and and kind of symbolizes the um, the approach that we're really encouraging scholars to take. And so it really doesn't matter which aspect of the policymaking or policy implementation process you're focused on. What really matters most is that you're that you're using this kind of core approach or this core um, epistemological frame to understand the policy process itself. So maybe I, uh, if I understand you correctly, this approach really allows us to see the entire process very differently from the making of the policy to the implementation of the policy. Uh, I would say, I would say, Peng Fei, yes, but Mm -hmm. it's really these approaches, not just this specific approach. We're not advocating one specific application of language-based methods. What we're arguing is that language-based methods in their entirety allow you to unpack and dissect and go more critically into various aspects of the entire policymaking process from policy conceptualization all the way to policy implementation and evaluation. Well, yes, thanks for the correction. And this leads uh, smoothly and perfectly to my next question, which which is what are these perspectives and what are, how shall we make sense of this entirety? So maybe I should lead, um, direct this question to Jessica. And I wonder if Jessica could say a little bit more about how you uh, conceptualize uh, the discursive perspectives. Like, for example, how is it different from um, discourse analysis? As we know, like discourse analysis itself is um, it's a pretty um, comprehensive approach and includes all different kind of perspectives. Yeah. So, so um, first off, I would say it's it's we're not arguing for something different than the broad umbrella term of discourse analysis. So when we say language based methodologies, um, we're just being encompassing um, in that mm-hmm. term. 
um, to assure that we uh, include perspectives that some people in the literature, the methodological literature, don't always put underneath the umbrella of discourse analysis, such as conversation analysis. Um, we have, for instance, a chapter around me membership categorization analysis, which is an offshoot of conversation analysis. Um, and that perspective is not always, sometimes it is, but it's not always included within the umbrella of discourse analysis. So language-based method, methods or methodologies um, is a term that um, is one that we're intentionally using to, to simply be more encompassing. We're not the only scholars that have used it either. We should note um, there are others that use that terminology. But in, it, in this um, kind of the most straightforward way to think about these perspectives, discursive perspectives, there's lots of different ways that we could name them. Um, but one of the ways that's really helpful to think about it is, is I like just envisioning an umbrella. Um, and within this umbrella, there are lots of different approaches that have some uniquenesses. They're distinct from each other, yet they have some shared assumptions. Um, <clears throat> and these perspectives generally focus on the ways in which language defined broadly, so including conversations, um, as well as text-based perspectives. Some scholars also attend to the visual. Some scholars also draw upon um, researcher-generated data, like interviews and focus group data. There's a variety of types of data that would be included in these perspectives. Um, but broadly, these perspectives are ones that attend to the way in which the language produces or performs something. So for instance, we know that through language, be it text or everyday conversations, that people go about doing things like in invitations or blaming or positioning particular identities as more valid than another identity. Um, so the assumption with these perspectives is that through this, the close study of language, we're able to understand the social world. We're able to understand how the world is organized. We're able to also understand how the ways in which the orderliness of the world might also be questioned or challenged. Um, so in other words, these perspectives provide us with um, both the theoretical understanding as well as the methods-based tools to unpack uh, how language is being used to do certain things to carry out the business of the everyday life, of the institutional life of people. So if I understand you correctly, you are really trying to emphasize the doing aspect of uh, language use. Uh, is that correct? Yeah, so, so that is pretty common in language-based perspectives. It's not really unique to my perspective or to our perspective. Um, that's one of the core assumptions of we could say language-based methodologies and more specifically discourse analytic perspectives that we're trying to make sense of the performative aspects of language, um, the doing of language. And this really gets to the underlying theories that undergird these perspectives um, and allow us to understand how life is performed through the enactment of language. Yeah. So, um, as you said just now, people have been using all different kinds of data to uh, to uh, study policies. So what kind of data? Like you mentioned um, texts and maybe also interview uh, transcripts. And what are some other forms? Yeah, so just thinking about um, our edited volume as well as the special issues that are closely related to this edited volume, the kinds of data that um, the scholars have used um, and the three of us have used in our own work as well have really ranged from researcher-generated data such as interviews or focus groups, um, but also a lot of um a lot of the contributors to our volume as well as special issue, um, perhaps unsurprisingly, also uh, had a focus on policy documents. Um, we also had a scholar that was focused on Twitter feeds. Um, so the, the, the social media space itself was his primary data set. Uh, we also had some scholars that uh, were attending to everyday interactions, so everyday conversations. Um, I know that um, Rachel can speak to this more specifically, but Rachel is a, a really great example. Her scholarship is a great example of someone who's um, in the past actually analyzed policymakers having conversations. Rachel, do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, I think this kind of connects with uh, Chad's conversation earlier about um, uh, about this 
focus on language and language use, whether it be text or talk or a combination of the two, um, being almost a natural kind of next step or evolution of the focus on policy um, from something that was pretty static and stable, like this is the policy, people carry it out or don't, and we kind of um, policy analysis often just looked at the outcome of a policy, so what changed as a result, so after a policy was made, and then another way of really thinking about how the policy influenced changes in behavior that led to particular outcomes. My next step was to think about um, the sort of action orientation of language in making that policy in the first place, communicating that policy. So how do those understandings um, get shaped? And then how do responses to policy um, uh, sort of get uh, become enacted in different ways, often through text or talk themselves? So um, I've looked at um, the policy-making conversations of committees that are tasked with creating the text of the policy. So instead of seeing the text as a static, um, like non-negotiable statement of what the law is, um, I was interested in how those words were chosen and how those ideas were um, organized and um, what went on kind of behind the scenes or between the lines of what eventually is written into state law. Um, to understand how different ideas get braided together, um, how different positions are um, held up or minimized or shut down, um, and when, when, when and where different perspectives come in. So I have looked at that with live data, just um, audio recording and transcripts of um, committees making decisions about how to write the actual policies, but also with... Um, text as well. So looking at newspaper articles that surrounded a policymaking moment, either right before a policy is constructed or just after, um, or a combination of the two. And so that sort of uh, interest in how the media um, produces language around and about different policies that informs how people understand them and how they respond to them, potentially, um, is picked up with the idea of looking at something like social media representations of um, district policies or how superintendents talk about their district policies, which was one of the chapters in our book. Um, so I think I think that answers the question. But I guess the um, the connection there for me is that um, we no longer think of policy as this sort of static monolithic thing that doesn't change and isn't dynamic. Um, and we also are not only interested in people's responses to or understandings of policy, so not just how do they make sense of the policy as it's written, but really understanding all of those processes as first mediated by language or they happen in and through language, whether that's talk between people or it's text that people have created and shared back and forth or co-constructed and then shared back and forth. Um, but also that the sort of um, understandings and um, meanings and outcomes of policy aren't limited to the who we consider policy actors and policy statements, not just like written down accounts or the laws themselves, but people who are sort of talking around and about it. So um, there are chapters in our book that also uh, use the communication talk or text of um, special interest groups and advocacy groups, um, which is sort of related to my work um, around advocacy for particular uh, bills under construction, um, but also media accounts, Twitter accounts, and how sort of larger um, communities of people uh, use language to interact with um, policies and changes related to those policies. Well, thanks, uh, Rachel. It's a really good example to uh, explain my question, to explain uh, or to answer my question. And I now I wonder how uh, how do you connect the uh, micro level analysis or observation of the communication interaction or interpretation with the more macro level of structural issues in relation to policy making and implementation. So any one of you would like to say a little bit more about that? Um, so I'll just I'll get us started on it. So I think first off, it's um, helpful to just recognize that not all scholars are necessarily aiming to do that. Um, some scholars, so we have a, a chapter in our text that focuses on membership categorization analysis. And while you could certainly identify implicitly some of the potential implications for broader structural concerns. Analytically, um, this scholar, Justin Paulson, he focuses more particularly on the micro with that being the methodological 
uh, assumption and intent of the approach that he takes up. So I think first it's just helpful to um, always keep in mind that not everyone is aiming to do um, everything with uh, an individual study. And sometimes it's really helpful for us to have a collection of studies that really attends to the micro or a collection of studies that really attends to the macro. Um, and then sometimes some people um, traverse thinking across micro, macro, and some would even argue um, for there being a meso. Um, Kate right. Anderson yes. Has, yes. has done some policy work um, where she um, illustrates this micro, meso, macro kind of perspective. Um, and so I think first off, it's just helpful to keep that in mind. Um, nonetheless, um, quite often people are interested in, in macro concerns because of um, their desire to see and also assumptions related to what counts as outcomes um, and impacting practice. Um, so as an example, um, a couple of our authors do attend to more micro concerns related um, to specific policies. Um, and also argue for some more macro implications. So we have a chapter, Hillary Lustig um, developed, that attends to um, the um, disciplinary policies within schools. Um, and this particular chapter is one that also can speak to some more macro concerns. Um, and she does that both methodologically as well as in her discussion, attending to the ways in which um, these policies both produce particular identities at the micro level, but also have implications for who's included and excluded in the schooling space and what this might mean for actually rethinking how these policies are um, both developed and then implemented within the context of, of the school itself. Um, and so that's just one, one example within our, our text that attends to both moving from here are the micro implications that we can see substantiated in the data set and what might this mean at a macro level, um, and then also then what might be some of the implications for this work. Well, thank you, Jessica. Do you have anything to add, Chad and Rachel? Well, one of the, one of the things that I think is important to understand is, is that many of the policy studies that have been conducted or have been recently published have used primarily the interview approach to actually reporting their findings or uh, deriving understandings of the policy process. And one of the innovative things about language-based methods is, is that we can actually begin tapping into other sources of information that have not necessarily been utilized as fully or as focally in policy research. So for example, we know that there is uh, currently a a strong proclivity among some U.S. policymakers to use Twitter as a way of influencing public debate. Um, we actually have not historically looked at Twitter uh, as being a potentially valuable source of discourse in most policy research. And yet one of the chapters uh, in the edited volume uh, and also in the special issue uh, uses Twitter to learn about and look at how identities are constructed uh, through um, Twitter analyses or through Twitter statements. That has some really uh, interesting and novel applications uh, in policy research because not only does it allow us to begin looking at how in very short snippets of text uh, policy discourse and policy ideas can be influenced, but it also shows uh, to a certain extent how various policy actors, particularly when they have a policy agenda that isn't necessarily uh, as valued or isn't as respected by um, the current policy elite, it allows us to be able to see how uh, those policy positions and dispositions are being uh, vilified to a certain extent uh, in the um, in the literature. And so, for example, uh, we're able to see uh, a great deal of um, how individual populations are being targeted through these discourses and how uh, various policy issues are being made relevant or irrelevant to um, populations where they historically have been. And so it really creates uh, some really interesting opportunities and potential for uh, research in the field. The other thing that it does is it opens up uh, some interesting mergers between uh, existing fields and now potentially policy uh, implementation research. And so, for example, you can bring together uh, not only analyses of statutory uh, regulations, uh, with those public uh, policy debates. And you can actually see to a certain extent how the policy debate has influenced or informed those 
those statutory definitions or discourses. And so it just really pushes us to think differently about what data can be used. It pushes us to think differently about how certain populations and audiences are being uh, presented or represented. And most importantly, it really opens up uh, opportunities for us to unpack and really mine more deeply how some of the policies that are being uh, introduced are actually coming to exist in the public's uh, consciousness or in their uh, understanding of what uh, the most important policy issues really are. Well, yeah, that really speaks very well about um, like uh, what you said previously about the uh, contributions and how these uh, these perspectives uh, make contribution to this field. So what are the targeted audience of the book? So are policymakers part of the audience? Uh, mainly the book is targeted to uh, the uh, academics, for example. No, the primary audience for the book is both policy researchers, graduate students, and then also policy practitioners, so policymakers. But we don't necessarily situate the book uh, as an applied manual by any stretch. We really uh, aim this uh, book at a scholarly audience and are encouraging scholars who use language-based methods to take up policy issues in their research. And then also the flip, we're also encouraging in the text those that perhaps are unfamiliar with language-based methods, methodologies, um, however, engage in educational policy work for this, this particular text to act to sort of be an invitation for them to explore further and um, potentially think about um, studying how these particular methodologies might inform and even push their work forward. Um, so in, in many ways, we're um, offering the text as, as both um, a volume for those that are familiar with these perspectives, as well as those that are unfamiliar, um, as a way for people to enter a new space. I think that's kind of a nice uh, way of thinking about your earlier question about connecting macro and micro. Um, and, and although it is important to um, point out that that isn't everybody's goal, I think a lot of uh, um, there are a lot of cases where people who study policy become interested in language based methodologies because at the end of a, um, of a more traditional policy analysis, um, the questions that they're left with. Um, can really only be answered by a more meso or micro level approach. Um, and so that often is the invitation in itself. It sort of is um, a, a way of addressing the unanswered questions in um, studies that, uh, that focus on um, uh, interviews or network analysis or a case study um, or even more of a traditional evaluation uh, of a, of a given um, policy and its outcomes. So sometimes the connection between macro and micro is, is really the, uh, the way that the study design is framed around a question. Um, uh, a, a macro level question uh, really needs a micro level answer. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And also I, um, I have a, a different question with it, which is about your collaboration. It, I'm just so impressed by how seamlessly you work with each other in producing this book. So I wonder if you could say a little bit more about this collaboration, like how did you divide the job and how did you select the exemplary studies in this book? I can speak to that a little bit. And then Rachel and Chad, you can chime in as well. Um, so first I'll address the issue of how did we select the 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 empirical studies that were included. And as I previously noted, um, this book, book really grew out of a two-part special issue that grew out of that earlier conversation at the International Congress of Qualitative Inquiry. And so for this particular volume, um, we initially did an, a first layer invitation to the authors that had contributed to the special issues. And those that um, were interested um, were invited to contribute um, an additional study and or a methodological conceptualization. Um, we had a couple other um, invitations that were made based on um, us knowing of scholars that were doing some really interesting language-based methodology work, um, but um, had initially not been at the stage of, of being ready to put them out in a, in a journal. So we have two chapters from Hilary Lustig um, and one from one chapter from Hilary Lustig and one from Justin Paulson um, that those individuals were not part of the special issues, but they were 
known to us um, in other contexts um, of doing some interesting and innovative work with methodologies as well as policy, and they were invited as well. Um, so that was our, our process of, of conceptualizing um, that. Um, and so very much our early work with our special issue, which involved um, you know extensive peer reviews, was part of that, that decision as well. We also had a peer review process for the edited volume. Um, as well. So that was part of think the thinking related to that. Um, and as far as how we conceptualize the work process, uh, I think if you just kind of return back to what we shared in regards to our um, areas that we bring to this work, um, much of our work was divvied up, so to speak, in connection to where we play uh, in our day-to-day -day work. Um, so I play in the methodological area mostly. Um, and my colleagues play, so to speak, in other areas. Um, and so we brought those different perspectives to this project, and that really shaped um, how we went about conceptualizing the feedback that we provided authors and conceptualized how we wrote, wrote up the introductory chapter um, as well as the concluding chapter. Um, so essentially we take up chunks of um, the text as we contribute our uh, own areas of expertise to the volume. Um, we basically could conceive of it as a patchwork design, so to speak, where we contributed in, in various patches to the different thinking. Um, but we also conceived of it as an equitable project. So um, we can't really tell you who took up what task and who took up, I don't actually even remember who took up what <laughs> task. Um, it was one where we just, um, had a plan and we all contributed to moving it forward. Wow. Yeah. That sounds amazing. It's amazing to see how your work complement each other's work and how you just work collaboratively and collectively toward this uh, product, toward this um, production of the book. And uh, well, we have taken so much time from you today. And before we uh, wrap up this podcast, and I, I have one last question, which is also like we usually traditionally ask our guests. Um, the question is, what have you been working on recently? So um, would you like to um, each talk a little bit about your current work? Sure. So I can talk first. This is Jessica. So most recently, I've been engaging in some methodological work related to applied conversation analysis, so an applied perspective to conversation analysis, so the analysis of conversations and its application to institutional settings, be it educational settings or mental health settings. Um, so this particular work has been in the form of a, an, a different book, um, a pedagogical book. Um, and that's been my most recent, most recent project, and my energies have really been centered around that. But related more specifically to this volume, um, Chad and I are also working right now on a piece um, specifically related to the study of governance talk um, in state board education meetings, and we're applying conversation analysis perspectives to understanding that data. So that's my most recent, my most recent work. And so we've also, uh, as, as a parallel to this, we also have a paper that we're working on that focuses on uh, the use of language-based methods within the interactions and exchanges between leadership coaches and school administrators. And so we're looking at video data that was collected over a six-year period um, that focuses, that, that includes leadership coaches who are working with school administrators uh, in a university-based uh, programmatic setting and we're looking at how issues of school reform and school improvement are introduced into those uh, coaching conversations so that we understand uh, how that how that is both a reflection or a reification of the broader accountability environment. Uh, and then I'm also working on a, a project right now that focuses on the implementation of new equity standards uh, related to the Title I Act uh, as part of the Every Student Succeeds Act. Uh, and I'm looking at that from a more traditional policy perspective uh, within which I've used an interview uh, study design. And what about you, Rachel? Um, my current work is focused on uh, transcripts, uh, court transcripts from, um, from court cases where teacher evaluation 
decisions were um, were being contested and brought to court. So I've been looking at the way that expert witnesses um, use language to construct different versions of their own expertise, um, and also how their expert talk um, works up different versions of uh, re- reliability and validity for different statistical tools that are used in um, teacher evaluation. Um, I also have uh, pursued the line of inquiry that led to the chapter that's included in this book, and I've been thinking about how, um, thinking and writing about how um, uh, other kinds of genres of um, of talk and text inform the way that testimony is written. So I've looked at how um, conversion narratives are um, are really similar to the testimony that people write about uh, legislation in general, and I've explored how that's worked in particular with the with the bill that that chapter is about here in Connecticut. Um, and um, in the future, I'm thinking about expanding that uh, not only to uh, conversations about bills, but um, uh, conversations within and between professional groups and advocacy groups um, in things like position statements and um, standards for professionals and just information available, publicly available information on websites um, that uh, work in different ways to construct versions of um, needs around reading and uh, definitions of the act of reading and of reading difficulty. Wow, cool. So you should really let us know once you have new works uh, published. And we look forward to have you again uh, in our podcast interview. Um, so thank you so much for taking your time to join us today and to talk about such a wonderful book. Uh, Jessica, Chad, and Rachel, it's a really great pleasure to talk with all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, thank you. Bye-bye. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.